Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode from Embellish Pod, an opportunity for me to ramble about whiskey or something for a few minutes. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com. I'll get that taken care of. You can also find video versions of this podcast on YouTube. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or TikTok with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. Today, I have the incredible honor of having Maureen Robinson join me from Kentucky Owl. Um, you know, and she's got a pretty significant history, and we're going to have a fantastic conversation about um, her history, about the work that she's done in the past in the scotch industry, the work that she's going to be doing with Kentucky Owl and a couple of other uh, fun and interesting things. Uh, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, we're welcoming Maureen to the podcast and it's an incredible honor. She's been part of the success at many brands, uh, not limited to, you know, Johnny Walker Buchanan Singleton, but more recently she's come on board the Kentucky Owl team as their new master blender replacing John Rhea. Um, you had retired from Diageo, but this opportunity from K Kentucky Owl seemed like it was enticing enough to bring you out of retirement. Um, tell me a bit about yourself and how this Kentucky bourbon brand was enough to bring you out of a very, very storied retirement. Yeah, as you say, my name is Maureen Robinson, and I was in the Scotch whiskey industry for 45 years. And actually, for nine of these years, I actually um, was in the laboratories learning, basically learning my craft, you know, like aromas and flavours and this, a bit about science behind uh, scotch. And then I moved into blending and I was a blender, a master blender with Diageo for uh, 36 years. And as you say, I retired June last year. Uh, but it's one of these things, uh, even my family say what happened to retirement because it only lasted about six months. And then I was asked, I was approached by Kentucky Owl if I'd be interested in doing a collaboration with them as part of the collaboration series. And I'd never worked with bourbon before. So I was really interested uh, to saying that, yeah, I would quite like that because it, it would give me something else to uh, get into and also, retirement is okay, but you sometimes get a little bit bored. So I thought, right, okay, I'll um, I'll do this project for them. And uh, thinking it was only going to be about six months, eight months. And then after working with John on the collaboration, uh, John had then decided he was going to retire. So, and of course, John, that was his second retirement because he actually was with Four Roses for about 40 years. And then, then they put Kentucky Owl then pulled him out of retirement to do the um, to become the master blender for Kentucky Owl, but he decided he was retiring again. So what happened was they then decided they approached me again and asked if I'd be interested to take on the role for a few years, um, since John was retiring. And I said yes, I'd do it for a few years. So that's how I ended up working for Kentucky Owl. So it it seems like. John has effectively stolen your retirement, right? Like he, he's like, Hey, come work on this thing. And then he's like, all right, now I've got her. I'm going to go retire and, um, she can do that. Um, what is maybe it, 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 I may be wrong here, but it feels like there's a relatively significant adjustment going from working in scotch to working in bourbon. And, and Colin and I were talking about this off, off air, but, 
you get these camps, or at least I've noticed camps and whiskey. You got your Scotch people and your Irish people and your Japanese people, Japanese whiskey people, um, and your American whiskey people, and they all maybe drink the other things, but um, they're really kind of you know very very locked into the thing that they do. Um, was shifting into this like Kentucky bourbon uh, frame difficult? Was it easy because there's a few more rules in place for bourbon than there are for Scotch? It, it's one of these things is they're just I've just come into the role so there's a lot I've got a lot of development and learning to um you know regarding bourbon but there's certain things in bourbon when I was working the project I realized that there's there was some um you know there wasn't as many differences as what I thought okay the aroma and flavor that's where the main difference is but when it comes to the process and also coming into blending there's there's a lot of similarities you know if you think about it um, when you're creating a new um, bourbon or a new scotch, in the scotch side of the business, you've got different distilleries, different ages, different wood types. And you've got something similar in bourbon as well, because if you think about bourbon, you've got the different mash bills. You know, you can change the mash bill, you've got different ages, and you've got different, um, I know it's all new uh, casts you've got to use, but you've got the charring levels of the casts. So you can actually use that different charring levels to sort of create the sort of wood profile you would have got in Scotch. So to me, there's there is quite a lot of similarities, and that's what I'm really looking forward to to really get into bourbon and just build up my knowledge of the you know what the different charring levels does to the spirit and the different mash bills. So and that's a bit I'm finding quite exciting, and uh, I think it'll be a great development plan for me just to go into a different type category of whiskey. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I know, you know, working in Scotch, you've likely had a lot of experience using uh, ex-bourbon casks because that's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty popular cask. And so there's some some tangential knowledge that exists there. Um, but one of the things that that is one of the more glaring differences for me, at least, is, you know, in the Scotch industry, blending is a very revered position, right? Like there is a high degree of notoriety um, and it's a thing that's celebrated but historically in bourbon that wasn't necessarily the case i mean if we run back into the 70s and 80s blended whiskey and blended bourbon was not um very well thought of at least in the north american marketplace but it's starting to kind of hit its stride and i think part of it is due is due to you know companies like kentucky owl and a handful of other folks that are you know kind of saying hey there's this art to blending that exists right there's an art to to distilling there's a science and art to distilling and then there's a science and art to blending and those things aren't always the exact same thing but um, are there some some places where you have a distinct knowledge that you you think you're going to be able to help shift this within the bourbon industry as well? Um, and I, I would challenge probably yes, but I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, I feel I was actually asked that question one of the times I was over in the US, and um, because at the master distiller is the person you know in blending was quite new, and my answer to that was that I feel um, both could work hand in hand because as an industry. Um, bourbon is the same, I think, as Scotch. Is the consumers look, always looking for something new. So um, I feel that as a blender and a distiller, you can work hand in because you can actually take the knowledge of the distiller about different mash bills. What what happens if you change the mash bill to this and things like that? What you know, and then as a blender, you then take that mash bill and put it into the different types of casts, and then just monitor and you know, and that that to a sense is a wee bit of a, sort of a long term to a certain extent because you've got to wait at least two, three years, you know, three 
years more to get the flavours coming through. But it's something that I feel that um, we could experiment with as the different mash bills and just for going forward that you can actually um, create new brands um, based on innovation. You know, and it, it I, I like this interplay of of distiller and blender. And there's a there's a heritage brand out there that, that has a particular club, and they put out um, two bottles that were blends, and one was done by the master blender, and one was done by the master distiller. Is sort of like a um, club only release. And I got to taste them, and, and lo and behold, the the blender's version, at least in in my opinion, was significantly better than the distillers. And it's not that the distillers was bad, but when that's your function, right? Your function is to create the best blend. I think maybe you're you're better suited to do so than the distiller, who is I need to make the best possible distillate that goes into the to the barrel and then ages and comes back out the other side of it. Um, but in crafting this particular bottle that you guys uh, worked on together, and I guess we haven't even mentioned it yet, is we have the the Maester, um, and I think that's pronou I pronounced that one right. I, I looked it yes, up a couple right. times. It's Maester. Yeah, it's Maester. I, I know my my brain immediately wants to say Magister, um, because that's the way the American English works, and it's not the greatest. But um, when you when you started working on this, the intent, is, at least from what I've read, is to put together a um, bourbon in a scotch style um, when you started off did you start off with a flavor profile that you and john were chasing together or um, did you just kind of identify your sources and then put the blend together yeah uh, what it was is uh, we kind of used both our experiences and what are what we imagine the styles to be and john he um he actually did a lot of work and then passed it on to me um, you know he took based on his experience of what um what scotch was like you know what he he reminisced of what scotch was like and he actually pulled in lots lots of samples and then he passed them on to me and basically we both kind of, we probably did both do it um sort of separate because john had come up with some recipes that he thought that um was close to what they wanted he then passed them on to me and i then took the samples and then i sort of made them up and then i sort you know i noticed the individual components and things like that and then i did some tweaking as to what i thought um you know because because bourbon is quite a strong flavor you know it's, it's quite um strong is it i was trying to get across in the scotch element more like the lighter scotches not like you know you've, in scotland you've got in the scotch you've got like this very smoky whiskies and things like that which we which we couldn't do at bourbon anyway but um but it was trying i was trying to get a lot of the lighter styles in and what i find found was there were certain what samples were the sort of, sort of lighter style, citrus fruits, the uh, fresh fruits of a scotch. And so I sort of played around with them to uh, get a bit more of what I thought was more reminiscent of what a scotch was, but still without losing the credentials of being a bourbon, because this is 100% bourbon, so you don't want to lose um, its identity. And so I then passed on what I got um down to John and then he sort of made them up because um, we both had our own sets of samples and he made them up made it up as well and then we came to agreement that the one that we put in the bottle Meester was what we thought was a, um, was a good example of the collaboration between a bourbon and a scotch. So and, and this is maybe a little bit more of what your personal style is as you're putting your uh, blends together um, are you doing this as close to the bottling strength as you're going to get or do you make the blend and proof them down at various proofs to kind of taste through it? Like, what does that process 
like? Yeah, what usually happens, and the same thing happens uh, um, when we're doing the collaboration series, is you, you tend to try and find what's, um, I won't say ideal strength, but a strength that, um, that allows the aroma flavour to come out, uh, what you're looking for. But where the collaboration series was, we had to, we were sort of looking at, um, they decided earlier on, we wanted a strength, um, the same strength for all three in the series. And one of the reasons behind that was because when you're, um, if you're doing a, a sort of comparison, you didn't want to have to have in the back of your head, oh, this is at such and such a strength, this is at that. What we were want, trying to get across was that the strengths were all the same. So what you were comparing was the different styles of whiskey between the three of them. And that was one of the reasons why we came. And also, at they're all at 100 proof is that they weren't, you know, when you're tasting them, they weren't too strong. You know, you, you weren't getting a lot of the harshness of alcohol and things like that. So you're getting, a, it was a, it was a quite a nice smooth strength, but it was also allowing the aroma, um, giving you lots of aroma and flavour coming through at that strength. Yeah, and I, I like that. That's, that's, that's useful because as you taste other brands that will do some of these experimental series whenever they're at different cask strengths, it's really... You, you nailed it. It's difficult to do that comparison. Um, and it also kind of adds a collectability like, oh, I can taste all the three of these things together. Um, but for this, this Maester edition specifically, right, we're, we're paying homage to, to scotch. Um, does it, does it hold up to proofing down? Like if I take it down to a 90 or a hundred or 90 or an 80 from the hundred that it's at, um, you know, it, would I expect it to stay the same or, um, you know, because I'm, th I'm thinking about the, the traditionalists for scotch. Um, 100 proof is on the high end for a lot of scotch drinkers. You know, if they proof it down, then what? Yeah, and also I do, um, I, what I found was with Maester is that adding a touch of water actually does what I came was my flavor journey. Because basically you're adding a touch of water and it, cha it changed it slightly. But you still got, um, what I found was that in the aroma, um, you know, you know, if he knows it's straight at 100 and then you add a touch of water, you find the aroma doesn't change much. It maybe brought out the emphasis on the bourbon style, you know, the bourbon aromas coming through. But what I found was in the taste and the flavour was if you add the water, initially when you actually tasted the whiskey um, at 100, you get all the bourbon flavours coming through first. Then you got the scotch flavours coming afterwards. But when you added a touch of water, it kind of flipped you end up getting all the scotch flavours coming first and then the bourbon flavours. And so um, it, I find it quite, you know, it was really quite interesting that, you know, just adding that touch of water, actually, it can emphasise different things and different whiskies. I'm a person who I I like um, adding ice to a lot of stuff, you know, especially mm -hmm. using ice balls, not, you know, you know the, the hard ice balls because to me that is almost like a flavor journey to me if you're if you're sitting with a drink with an ice ball and sometimes i just add a touch of water to because what happens is that water heats the whiskey up and then that starts to melt the whisk the ice ball but it's very slowly and so as you're sipping and tasting um every time you go back to it you're getting another flavor coming through and things like that so uh, it's something that I, i've done this for years i, I just call, I, I just call it my flavor journey you know because mm -hmm. you can sit and enjoy it and the thing the good thing about an ice ball is by the time you've actually got um, you might have finished uh, your drink and then you still got plenty of ice left so you might have another one just to sort of um, give Absolutely. me another flavor journey <laughs> 
Yeah, I I agree with that completely. So for for the Maester specifically, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the flavors, but what is the flavor journey, you know, that 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 you've sort of kind of documented yourself from this? Because, and I know, like you know, taste is subjective, and everybody's going to taste yeah. something slightly different. Um, but what is the what is the journey for you, like on this bottle? Yeah, and this one with Maester, what I found is that if when you first uh, nose it, you you'd actually think you actually were drink uh, you were nosing a Scotch because you get the sort of to me like the green floral notes coming through. Uh, one of my descriptors is hedgerows, but I, I think that's quite difficult for an American to understand because uh, we get hedgerows in Scotland, but you don't get, I very much doubt you get them in America. So um, you get that first. Then you start to get like ester, you know, citrus fruits, estery fruits. And then all of a sudden you get a sort of sweetness and that fruitiness turns into like stewed fruits. You know, you get like, you know, if you're making an apple pie or something like that, you know, you've got the sort of sweetness of um, stewed fruits. Then after a time, you then start to get the bourbon flavours, the aromas start coming through. So you start to get the spicy oakiness. You get, you know, we're getting a bourbon. Then you get the sort of what I term as the vanilla fudge flavours coming, uh, aromas coming through. And then you get that sort of I call I tend to call it black currants. It's a hint of black currants. It's almost like dark fruits. Um, mm. It's something. It's a descriptor I've always used for bourbon is black currants. And so you get that hint of black currants come through. And as I mentioned earlier on, and then in the flavour, you end up, you get all the bourbon flavours come through first. You get the um, spicy oak, you get the vanilla fudge, you get the sort of black currants. But it's also quite creamy on the roof of the uh, mouth. And it's very smooth going down. It's not, um, you know, it's not, um, you, you don't get a burn. It's very smooth going down. And then after a while, it then becomes, you get this nice spicy oak aftertaste in the mouth but it's not it's not um overpowering it's just it's nice and subtle and it, it leaves a lovely aftertaste absolutely and you you, you described a, a fantastic journey right like so that I, I like that and i think that's i think that's how most people whether they can um communicate it well or not that's what they anybody who drinks whiskey neat or with ice or any fashion they sort of have that uh, inherently it's just kind of part of it because you, you get acclimated to a certain flavor and then you go back and taste and now you pick up a different flavor um, and i always enjoy listening to people from other parts of the world describe uh, whiskey because you mentioned black currant but black currant's not something that largely exists in north america you know aside from a jelly or something and that that doesn't give you the taste of a blackberry jelly and a blackberry are very, very different from each other. They're, they, they're reminiscent of each other, but they're not the same. And so um, trying to find what the thing is that we have that's similar to that is always um, super fun. So for the maester, if I want to, if I want to go on this journey, is this, do, do I need to put this in a, a glass and let it sit for 10 minutes? Like how should I taste this? If I want to taste it like Maureen does. I think, uh, as I said before, you, you, you know, you, you have it in the glass to begin with, uh, nose and taste it, you know, try it neat first. Uh, but then I would try, I would, the other thing I always say to people is you drink your, whether it's a bourbon, an American whiskey or a scotch, is you drink it the way you like it, you know, the way you enjoy it. You should, you know, we tend to sort of say um, you, you should drink it like this and that, but it's, it's we are there to give you guidance as to how to drink it. But um, I always say to people, experiment your different serves because you might find one that's completely different you enjoy better than what you'd, um, you'd expect to. And so to me, I'd start with it's neat, try and taste it, add a little water, but then 
um, and see all the differences when you add the water, but then go and try it with the ice and mm -hmm. as you go along. And that's, that's sort of the progression of a lot of, at least a lot of my friends that will do tasting notes, they do neat ice or neat water ice as their progression so they can kind of see how it transforms. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's always kind of an interesting journey for folks. Um, so you're you're now the master blender for Kentucky Owl and Kentucky Owl has put out the Takumi, which was um, Japanese whiskey inspired. There was um, an, an Irish whiskey, the, the St. Patrick's Day edition. There is um, now the Meister, um, you know, and we're exploring what it appears like we're exploring world whiskeys. Um, what, what does the future hold or, or can we speak to what the future holds? <laughs> I, I think the idea is that there will be um more collaborations but we're going to put that on hold for a wee while because basically we had three right non-stop after one another so we've decided that um we will be doing more collaborations but we're going to sort of maybe sort of pack it for a wee while and start looking at other things that we can do because kentucky what we want to do is we want to we want to expand the portfolio so mm -hmm. um it's a matter of looking at what can we um do what what do you want to do in the future and one of the other things i think um Kentucky wants to do as well, is that we actually want to make it global. You know, mm -hmm. um, we want to go out with, it is already, the collaborations are out with um, the US, but bourbon's not really still that popular out with the US. So mm -hmm. I think one of the things we want to do is to start to bring, uh, get things, you know, go around the world with it to, try, to let people understand that you do have the bourbons, you know, the, okay, things like Jack Daniels, Jim Bean, they're very well known globally but we are trying what we want to do is to show that there is other uh, flavors and aromas out there there is a diversity of flavor within bourbon so we want to enhance that and take it to the world rather than just keep it within the u.s so you know you're talking about um expanding the portfolio right now kentucky old kentucky, kentucky owl traditionally does they do a bourbon, they do a rye under the, the flagship Kentucky Owl, which is, you know, this, this storied brand that's been around forever. And then we have um, Wiseman, which were Wiseman or Wiseman. I can't remember which one it is. Wiseman. Uh, Wiseman. So, so Wiseman um, is another one. Are we talking about kind of expanding underneath those or, or is there going to be maybe some new um, skews for lack of a better term? That, that uh, I, think, look, I think for Wiseman's concern is, um, We'll probably keep that as it is just now. Maybe look at doing um, different things. But I think our concentration will be on Kentucky Owl, um, seeing what can we do um, to create new innovations within Kentucky Owl and probably look at things that are maybe going to be like ongoing, um, not just limited edition, but looking can we um, do something that's going to be mainstream. Mm -hmm. So that's something for us to look at. And, and maybe maybe this is a discussion, maybe it's not, um, you know, the, at least in the United States, uh, American single malt is this rising, um, category, uh, at least, uh, you know, with some impending legislation to clearly identify what it is. Um, is there opportunity with your background and with the rising growth of this particular segment that Kentucky Owl explores, uh, American single malts? Yeah, there are, there always is opportunity, you, you know, no matter what it is um i'm not that because i'm not that long in role i've still got to do a lot of discussions with our market and people and things like, and things like that so it's something it, you know something that's there to explore i'm not saying we won't do it or we will do it it's just it's there to it's there to be explored and something for the future 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, maybe one final on, you know, market trends, but like uh, barrel finishing is super, super popular uh, in, in the United States now with um, the, the different wine finishes that exist. There's some tequila finishes out there. Um, and sometimes it can feel a little bit um, cliche or overused. And then sometimes it's really, you know, it feels very, very innovative. Uh, you know, we have somebody that's like, oh, I'm, I'm finishing it in a watermelon Jolly Rancher barrel. Like that's not a real thing. But uh, when you find these new um, spirits to kind of pair with or new barrel types to pair with, is, is that a is that a thing that Kentucky Owl looks to to, to, to explore or are we, we sticking with a very traditional bourbon profile? No, I think, it, you know, we will explore it because we've already done it um, with Kentucky. We had the Mardi Gras uh, product mm-hmm. uh, so it's something to explore the thing with finishing you've got to be very careful in the type of cast you choose and also what you put into the cast because you you want to get them both to marry together you don't want where um one overpowers the other so it's all about getting a marriage and just uh, you know and just gelling right so and um, mm-hmm. that's something um it, t- it t- sometimes it takes quite a bit of time plus that with finishing you've also got to and we used to do something similar to scotch because basically with a finishing you could start finishing something but by the time you get to the end of it you think that's not what i wanted so you've got to move you know it takes a wee while for um to get just get it right uh, mm-hmm. so but it's again like expand portfolio and um, finishing single cast, it, it's it's all there to explore and something that we, we will be um, willing to explore. So, and you mentioned a word in there, single cask. Um, you know, like the the ability to to for a particular retailer group, whatever, to do single casks is is that a, a place that Kentucky Owl looks to to expand into in the future. That's I'm not too sure, um, but mm-hmm. I, I, but as I said earlier on, it you know there's you know it's a bit like in Scotch, so you know you've got the whole the, the world's an oyster if you want to say you know mm-hmm. to try different things, and um, um, I I quite like doing experiments, <laughs> experimental stuff. So it, you know it's just something it's it's there to to uh, to look at. And so in in your your current um, position, you know, p- part of the goal is to help craft the direction of the the Kentucky Owl brand and kind of see where it's going to go. Um, in your experience in, in the Scotch realm, was it was it similar to that, or you know, do those brands have such a history that you're sort of like, here's your core profile, you need to stay as close to this as possible, and you have one experiment here, one experiment there. Yeah, it depends because let's say if you take uh, let's say Kentucky Owl confiscated, that's like part of our core brand a core brand which now so part of the remit for like say a blender also is to make sure the uh, consistency of that brand stays you know as close as possible as what you want to do uh, but it's the same with you know matter what you do but the likes of when it comes to um your topic scotch here if you take the singleton brand as an, an example the singleton brand was uh, it it was one of these where it was new we introduced it and um, the different ones for different markets, and mm-hmm. that was that was new. It was just somebody came up with an idea. Okay, some of the, the distilleries weren't new, but the actual um, brand, uh, the actual the story behind it was completely new from what it was before. So, mm-hmm. um, so the same thing. Um, I can see something happening with Kentucky. There'll be something there that we want to build from, you know, from the bottom upwards to get it into um, something that's um, worldwide known. 
Was there something that was particular about Kentucky Owl that was attractive to, to, to pull you out of retirement? Or was it just the, the bourbon segment itself plus the history of Kentucky Owl? Like, was it Yeah, I think it was the segment because uh, I'd never worked in that um, in that segment before. But also, Kentucky Owl had, to me, um, what I found interesting was uh, the original founder, Charles Deadman. He was a pharmacist, and to a sense, and I actually started my career uh, training, well, trained to be a pharmacist. I never, I actually took a sort of, almost like a sabbatical out. I, I never went back to doing pharmacy. I ended up going down the sort of chemistry route instead, and I started working for Diageo. Uh, and the thing about um, the sort of the sort of pharmacy side is that um, just recently I've had a bit of a whirlwind since I actually retired because just about two or three weeks ago I actually got an honorary doctorate from the university I actually went to in uh, in Glasgow. So um, so that's um, so I kind of sort of think, oh, this is good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I never actually completed my course, but I've now got a doctorate in science. So, um, so it's really, um, it's just what it was. One of these things where, again, you know, as I say, I had never worked with a bourbon before. I hadn't actually done a lot of tasting a bourbon either, and I think it's because occasionally with some of the, you know, it, it it was never something on my radar before. And uh, now it's really, uh, I've actually got to quite um, really get into it now. So. Um, it's interesting because I now do have bourbons as well, scotch in the house. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, there's 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 all kinds of ways for us to spread the market. Maybe it's just start hiring everybody from from Scotland to to work for us. Um, and you, you mentioned on this, and it was actually a question I did have um, because my my mother was a pharmacist for the duration of her career. And as I started poking around about who Maureen was, I come across this thing. Uh-huh. This is, you know, you were you studied to become a pharmacist. Um, so you know. Uh, pharmacy can be a very interesting career there's a lot of science that's involved in that how do you make this transition from where you're studying to become a pharmacist and then you're like i'm gonna go work in whiskey like how does that transition happen it, it was it, as i say it was one of these things where i actually um had been at university i actually took the year out then within that time i thought right i'm going to start seeing if i could get a job and i actually applied for a well i didn't actually it was one of these things where i was lucky and where i wrote into um it was dcl at that time i wrote into asking if there was any jobs uh, in science in the laboratories at that time i didn't get i got told there was no vacancies but next thing i got a letter saying there was a vacancy so i you know i went and i got the job and it it was one of these things. If I hadn't enjoyed what I was doing, I probably would have left and maybe and probably went back to the university to finish my degree. But I decided that um, what I was doing in the labs, I was really enjoying it. On trying to understand the science of the whiskey, I was starting to learn all about aromas and flavors. And then after nine years, I um, I, I kind of sort of went onto a small project, a bit like you know blend a blending project, really. Uh, as a project and I really started to enjoy that and then the opportunity came up to come and um, to get the blend a blender's job and uh, masculine so I applied for that and it was one of these things that uh I didn't think I I didn't think I would get a job because basically mm-hmm. in these days it was DCL it was still a very male dominated in that part in that part of the business was still very male dominated I was a female. I was actually quite young still compared to, you know, 
it and I did get the job. So and I just went on from there. And I, I must admit, ever since I became a blender, master blender, I had never had enough hours in the day to do what I wanted uh, work wise. Right. Um, and you know, I, I, I think it's, I think it's still largely the case that you know, whether it be blender or distiller, um, those are very, very you know, male dominated industries, and it's um, sort of curious because at least biologically, women tend to be better at tasting things than men are, right? Yeah. Whether it's well, evolutionarily or whatever. Yeah. So I, I don't always uh, agree with that question nowadays. I would have said mm -hmm. years ago, yes, because but because there's so many. Uh, you know, men and in in, even in the household as well as, uh, you know, chefs and that, because a lot of men now do a lot of cooking in the house and the kitchen mm -hmm. and things like that. So I think their vocabulary, I think, is getting a lot better than what it used to be. Uh, and also on the sort of female side, on the blender side of things, uh, the, there is a, a lot more people within the Scotch industry, females in the Scotch industry, not just in blending in every aspect, because you've got people who do warehousing, coopering, you know, and things like that. So it, it for an, an industry has, it has done a bit of a turn uh, over mm -hmm. the years. Yeah. And I think at least here in the United States, I think we're on the edge of making that similar turn. You know, we, we like to do things on our own timeline and that's not always the best. Um, so you're at this kind of uh, pivot point when you were working, um, in a lab and you apply to, to be a blender, but, um, I would assume, you know, kind of given your pharmacology background and experience in a lab, like you could make a pivot into a distiller's realm. Was it just the blender job was open or the blender job is what you really wanted to go after? It, it was a bit of both because I'd, I'd actually started to, one of the reasons, uh, was, um, I'd already done that project in blending you know it was like blending a, a sort of it was pure it was basically it was all based on a roman flavor you were create i was create helping create a, a blend with somebody else on it was it was a blend based on uh you know it was actually called grassy green you know it's all about we were looking for casts that had if aromas and flavors of grass and you know sort of grassy green notes and things like that so so that i had that experience and then when it came up i thought right I think it is a route I would like to go down, uh, so I applied. So, and um, you said grassy flavors, and traditionally, at least from a lot of bourbon drinkers, that becomes a profile that they're not necessarily super uh, fans of. And bourbon is very, at least opinionistically here uh, bourbon is you know very s syrupy sweet very very sickly sweet um is that a is that an adjustment point for you coming from scotch which can be sweet but it also has a lot more subtle flavors and a lot more um softness to it um does this like over sweetness is that like a huge adjustment or is it not as bad as i would imagine it it's it's not as bad. It's really just getting the balance right between the different and nothing from uh, you know the with your chan because what I found when I was doing Maester was that uh, Maester's made up from three straight bourbons and one wheat bourbon, and the wheat bourbon was a four year old, and basically what I found with the wheat bourbon was that it gave you a lot of the characteristics you would expect in a Scotch. You know, you got the sort of the sort of citrus fruits, the lightness, and things like that. So it wasn't quite, and the sweetness wasn't a uh, what I would term as a vanilla fudge sweetness. It was just a, a hint of sweet coming from the sort of stewed fruits type thing. Uh, so um, I think it was, um, I th you, you know, you, you do. You 
vanilla sweets. I quite like vanilla fudge, uh, you know, so mm -hmm. I get that a lot in bourbons. It's probably where the balance is. You really have to get the balance right. If, let's, even in Maester as well as getting, it's actually the oakiness because, the you know, you tend to have, if you've got a level four char, that's where you get the right, you know, that's really strong, spicy, oaky, woody, whereas the sort of um, lighter char gives you more room for the sort of lighter styles to come through. And now mm -hmm. and it's a matter of um, working out what you want in your head as a flavour, and you just play around with the different um, charring and the different mash bills to try and get what you want. Okay. Um, and you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to go back to this. You know, I, you, you worked on this blend for the Maester with, with John. Um, he has a huge history with four, four roses. Um, and you know, since his, um, first retirement and coming back out to work at Kentucky Owl, and maybe that's what Kentucky Owl's legacy is now is they just bring everybody out of retirement, <laughs> right? Who, who is the next retired blender that needs to be uh, brought in, but um, you know he kind of pushes out this this Takumi release and a couple of other things, and he brings you in to work on this. Um, what what about this? How did this blending process work between the two of you? And I know you said you know kind of there's some samples going back and forth, but um, you know is it, it how how does this work logistically? I guess. Well, logistically, it, it worked very well actually because he did all the drawing of the samples and did um, knows uh, a lot of the samples, and then he kind of sort of and um, then pulled out the samples that he thought was right. He, 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 he sort of sent like component parts to me as well, and I sort of nosed and tasted them, and from them I kind of sort of decided, well, this is more like a scotch, this is more like a bourbon and things like that. And that's what he ended up, he played around with, you know, the different uh, component parts. And they were they were all different ages. As I said before, you had the straight bourbons and you had diff in different ages, and then you had the um, the wheat bourbon at another age. So it was a matter, because the, the thing, um, I don't really yet know, but the name Maester is actually Gaelic for master. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the reasons why, and it's the same with Takumi, it was the word um, meant master in Japanese. So that was one of the reasons why the names were picked, because basically what they're trying to do is create a name that sort of defined John and I's, that we were masters of our art type thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the reason behind the actual names. Uh, but, but then again, you know, we had, you know, we had samples all over the place and, you know, sort of playing around with them and things like that. So, um, and we saw, and then we even did it, you know, I was saying that they were at 100 proof. And even for the final one, basically what we did was we made up our blends based on the cash strength first, then diluted it down to 100 proof and then left it resting. Like, we, you know, it was kind of done exactly. You were doing the process, you know, where the samples were then allowed to rest for a while and then we nose and tasted them and then we, and then left them again just to sort of nose and taste to make sure um that the after you know a couple of days even to make sure that it hadn't um they hadn't changed they were what we were expecting them to do and again sometimes uh for when it comes to it's a lot of when also when when we're adding water and that's one of the reasons why we also added water when we're actually nosing and tasting them is because you want to make sure that when you've added the water like a consumer might do that there's nothing going to be you know there's not going to be a surprise there it's going to be what mm -hmm. you expect it to be so yeah and so uh, maybe a couple more questions the, the the proofing process um 
do you just dump your water in and let it go? Or do, do you kind of explore like a slow proof? Um, and then once you do proof it down, how long are you letting it sit so, before you so kind of revisit it? Pretended to just add the water and then let it sit. Mm -hmm. And what's, is this like a, you wait a day, you wait a week, you wait a month? It's, it's actually the, like uh, a day. Okay. You know, just 24 hours a day. Okay. Perfect. So if, if, if I, if I do an experiment later on, I say, all right, I'm going to take this Kentucky Island. I'm going to measure things out and I'm going to get, um, the maester at hundred proof, 90 proof, 80 proof. Yeah. A couple of hours is all I really need. I don't have to let it sit yeah. for a week or anything like that, because it seems no. like a fun thing that I really want to try. And I'm going to be like, Hey, how does this work out as it proofs down on its own? Um, the only other thing to add that I didn't do at the beginning uh, about myself is that, uh, and you probably have the information anyway, is that um, I actually am a keeper of the creek, a master of the creek, which is the, um, the sort of society where you have to be invited to become part of that mm -hmm. society. You've got to have done something with the, the, um, with the industry. And then I also became, um, that was in 2012, I became a keeper. In 2022, I actually became a master. And the master one, you have to have been a keeper for 10 years before you can become a master. And again, you have to be invited. It's not guaranteed that you will actually become a master. And I actually got, um, was invited to become a master actually after I retired. So it was, uh, it was October last year. And I also, in 2019, I became part of the Whiskey Hall of Fame as well. Mm -hmm. So it, it is maybe, and that, that kind of brings me a couple more questions now. So, and I'm glad you said the word because I can read the word, but I don't know how to pronounce it. The quaith, right? Quaith. So you're the master of the quaith and the quaith. keeper of it. Um, and then in 2019, you're in, in, inducted into the, to the whiskey hall of fame. Um, I think you, you, you may be able to make a run at the bourbon hall of fame as well now. Right. So you kind of <laughs> get into the segment and see how many accolades you can get. Um, and you've said a couple of times that this is, this is not, you, you and maybe you have a time frame in mind, but I don't know that you expect to do this for 20 more years. Do you have a time frame or do you have a goal that you're trying uh, to kind of get I, to? In I, this? No, I don't, I don't have a time frame and probably not a goal. It's probably one of these things where, because uh, the idea is also, you know, we, we want to progress. So we will bring somebody else in for me to train and things like that. And then, then it, as a massive then I'll just make up mind whether, you know, when I think it's a time to go type thing, but I don't think it'll be another 45 years <laughs> like, like I did with the Scotch industry. But, you know, I can't see, you know, I can, um, it's, it'll be, you know, at least a couple of years probably uh, at least. And then, uh, you know, sort of look to the future. And unless I can get a prodigy to come in and actually, um, they can follow my footsteps straight away. So, you know, quite thing. So, so it's a matter. And the thing is, to get somebody in, you, you want to get the right person doing the job and things like that. And that will take you quite, that will take time. So are you, are you actively looking for a, a, a successor or is it just as you work and, and kind of meet with people and identify folks, um, you know, is it going to happen organically? Yeah, no, it will be the latter, just as you start to get to know people and understand the business and then, you know, mm -hmm. just see who, you know, just start to look at um, the people that you, you meet on a day-to-day -day basis. And so what, what do you, I guess, do you have anything you're specifically looking for or you just, you know, uh, you, you'll, you'll get there? I think, I think it's just one of these things you'll, we'll, we'll get there, you know, um, you know, you've sort of, I suppose the one, I, I was at actually, when I was in um, US in September, there was like one of these whiskey X um, 
events and one of the people there said he goes how do you get a job in this place to do this type thing so there is probably people out there who are enthusiastic you know want to do it mm-hmm. again you know it's it's good to have you know i am a blender i'm not a distiller um, but um, and I sort of, but you, you need the understanding about distilling in order to become the blender. So it'll be a matter of that. You know, you've got different areas you can look at to um, where the people could come from. You know, it could be a distiller comes becomes a blender, or you know, it could be um, somebody who's in a, again like what I was in a different industry. Uh, you know, a different type of spirit who might look to come back in, come into the bourbon industry like what I've done. Yeah. And it's always interesting to see the people that end up in the bourbon industry because it can be anything from your story to a history major to um, a former tech giant. Right. They have all these these tech people that show up here and artists. And it's just this 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 weird realm of and I don't think misfits the right term, but it's just a group of people who become passionate about the thing and they um, sort of explore that. And uh, it feels like that's, you know, kind of kind of been your career as well. And, you know, it's it's a pretty significant achievement that you did before you retired and now you're coming back in to kind of set another round of achievements and i think we can only expect you know great things to come out of um kentucky owl and the the things that you're working on you know we're uh, i know us as the whiskey geeks right and we don't make up the largest portion of the population of whiskey consumers right the whiskey geeks are you know maybe two three four percent of the overall marketplace and there's everybody else is like that's a pretty bottle i'm gonna buy it um how do you get their attention with Kentucky Owl, right? The people who are, you know, they, they don't listen to whiskey podcasts or mm-hmm. read whiskey news, right? How do we get their attention? I, I think it's one of these things is, uh, you know, you, you can have, um, you know, okay, you're talking about the pack, you know, they're saying it's a nice bottle, but the thing is the nice bottle looking pack is only the start of it because you have to have a good whiskey in the bottle because otherwise you just won't get anybody coming back to drink it so um a lot of people think you know, a lot of things are oh it's a pack it sells it and things like that but it's not because if you if you've not got something there that it it can you know the people keep on going back to because it's it's good and enjoy it and things like that so and that's the whole point of you know for a uh even from the distiller's point of view as well, to so make sure they're consistent what they're giving you as a, to, as a blender to um, to put in the bottle, is that you want the consistency and um, just make sure everything in the bottle is there. The other thing, it's also, you, you, probably actually, you do actually have to have a story behind it. You can't just sort of say, here's the bottle, drink it, and that's it. So you do like to have a bit of a story behind it, um, a sort of history and story behind the bottle as well even even behind the pack sometimes uh, and they do it a lot in the scotch whiskey industry they do where it's the actual pack because if you take uh, you know so maybe taking an old-fashioned type bottle and then using that and because uh, you know and then um, sort of building the story behind what the pack was and then building the story behind the spirit as well yeah and it, you know I, I, it, it reminds me of a conversation that was had at the kentucky bourbon festival this year where um one of the panelists kind of said you know you don't really and, and i'm paraphrasing this is not exactly what he said but you don't build a brand off of bottles you build it off of case sales right and so it's you can sell the first bottle but can you get them to come back and pick up a second one? and that's through that work of consistency and quality um how do you you know in a in a realm where you know aging in kentucky and the variation of barrel to barrel can be pretty significant how do you work to maintain consistency uh, across 
you know, specifically if you think about the confiscated or Wiseman, you know, those are supposed to have standard profiles. How do you, how do you work to maintain that? Basically it's just bringing in lots of samples and I'm not saying you, you will, because they did the same as you'll nose and taste every cast, but what you do is you bring samples in and you will mix the samples up to what you want the blend to be like, and then you nose and taste that. And then if it's not consistent with what you want, you then have to go back and pull it apart again and play, you know, and uh, do the cast. So it's, it's basically as um, doing a lot of sampling because I know, you know, within bourbon, which we didn't have the issue in Scotland, but is the temperature. And it is getting that right balance where the, the casts are lying and things like that. So it's making sure that you are consistent the way you draw the samples. Yeah. And do you do you keep like a, a control sample handy where it's like, this is what the profile of it is, right? That I pulled this out of a bottle will, and then yeah, I start looking towards it. Yeah, there will be. And also it's the same with, um, it's like the new distillate coming off as well. You'll have a sample of that and checking the new distillate as it comes off to make sure that's okay. the same. And, and as a as a blender, how much time do you spend with new distillate, or do you spend any time with new distillate well, as it comes off? Um, what it will be is, um, I know I'm based in Scotland, but my idea is I, when I want to do all the nosing and tastings, I will head over to uh, Barstown to Kentucky Isle, and I arrange for to bring all the samples in. And the distillate plays an important part of mm-hmm. the the blending process as well, because and that's one of the things I've got. Um, it's another thing for us. Uh, Blend, um, sort of development plan for me is um, is actually having a new distillate because we'll have the new distillate, this new distillate line in the is actually looking at that maybe two years on or you know one year, two year, just to see how the cash reacts and that starts building up my knowledge of the you know the flavors and the aromas in the cat you know as it's maturing in the cask. And then that, and that actually helps you a lot more when it comes to that show and um, making up batches because you know you know your own mind well if this is this age in this barrel i know it looks like that and things like that so especially when it comes to innovation yeah and so you you know you're, you're doing kind of an initial taste at one to two years um do you what does your sampling frequency look like for you know what's in the barrel once it gets into a, a mature age and by mature, I'm really just kind of saying post four years, right? Well, is yes. it a, every six months? Is it once a year? Yeah. You know, or, or... Initially for me, it will be, as I say, from because I'm just learning uh, mm-hmm. about bourbon and things like that, is actually I'll do it on maybe every six months or something like that. But mm-hmm. once I've got that knowledge, it, it'll be, I'll bring in just the, when I'm making up batches, I'll bring it in and then I'll play. And then if it's not what I want, I then go back and see, well, there could be a rogue cask there. So you've got to pull that rogue cask out and things like that and uh, just mm-hmm. to make sure you're consistent. And it's, right. and it's yeah, like, it's like else, you might have to add some cask when you make a batch up because sometimes uh, you, you you tend to, you, you can build into, you know, what you think is going to be in the barrel and things like that but at the end mm-hmm. it might be slightly different so when you make that batch up so you've got uh what you've got to do then is you've got to try and realize what was it that i'm missing uh, some of that and then add in another few casts of what uh, you think you need to add to bring up to that consistency so what uh, i assume you know you have just like a significant number of samples. What do you do with all these samples? Because I assume you don't drink all of them, right? You no, don't taste out well. of them. So that, then what the happens to them? Yeah. Like, uh, they, well, I'm not. I'm assuming it's the same as the Scotch. You actually put them down the sink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you actually, just pour them down. 
Yeah, and and there's you know because it's, I would assume it's the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah, because um, basically because you're you're drawing the samples, you're you drawing them in as what we term as uh, well what we term as duty free. So you, um, they're not you can't um, do anything with them unless you're going to pay the duty or American duty, and then you have just got to you just put them down the sink. Do you ever come across one sample where you're like, no, no, I'm going to sit this over to the side and I'm going to drink the rest of this label because it's fantastic? That, that, that can happen because sometimes uh, you might find, uh, when you're doing that, you might find a cast, an individual cask that you might like uh, and you will mm-hmm. put that aside. And that's probably going back to the question um, when it comes to single cask. Do, is that the kind of thing you would do with a single? If you're going to go down um, in the future, if you go down that route, it could be you come across one of that and you say, oh, I'm going to leave that one. And that'll be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know at least in, in in the United States, a lot of people go kind of crazy over the idea of single casks. But I know they're also just incredibly expensive to do because you're having to kind of you know stop and on a production line, you have to stop, you have to clean your lines, then you have to put in, and this is what you get. And maybe you're left with a small bottle, and then you stop, and they got to have a special label, and everybody feels great about it. Um, you know, it, it makes more sense at least to me whenever you like have an event, like we're gonna have a release for this event, right? That's fine. instead of having every club group and retailer come to you and say, "Well, I should get a." barrel as well right but we all want it right because we want to taste a single barrel version of this particular distillate because it gives you an idea of what goes into your blends right because the blends are great um i don't i don't have any more questions and i i really really appreciate the time that you have given me um you know and and i'm excited to see what you specifically are going to do with kentucky al and um, i'm enjoying this sort of residency of what have been significant masters of their craft um over the last handful of years within the kentucky owl brand um all right so thank you very much for joining me once again maureen if there's anything else that you want to share if you have a a link or uh, social media or any of that stuff that you're that you have to do now um, feel free to share that but like i said I, i truly appreciate the time yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, I'm I'm one of the old school. I don't really do social media a bit. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, it can be that that's the one thing that is the, the worst about some of this stuff is having to try to keep up with that. I'm I'm old enough to have been before the internet existed, but I grew up with it as a, you know, kind of a teenager. Um, and so I still have some of that uh, grumbliness when it comes to social media. So I appreciate that completely. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in for this offering from Embellish Pod. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have to be consuming this on and leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at TikTok or Instagram using Embellish Pod and give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can be found at www.embellishpod.com with all of my links, accounts, and contact details. Thanks for stopping by.